As we read the story of these uh, two men who were freed from demons, um, it made me think of when I was just a little kid. I was probably five or six years old, and I didn't know anything about the devil. Well, I had an older cousin who was uh, probably four or five years older than me. And, and when you're little and you have an older, he's my closest male cousin. And when you, when you hang out with your cousins, you look up to your older cousins, don't you? Look, look to them as kind of teachers, and they teach you some really great things, right? And uh, we were, for some reason, they were here in town visiting us. And I don't remember every detail because it was a long time ago. And I was little, but what I remember is I think he was playing, we were playing a game, and it was a game of tag, and the person chasing us was named Lucifer, and he was invisible and bad. And that's all, I, that was my introduction to Lucifer. You, you know, Lucifer is another name for the devil. And, and so um, that's one of those, hey, don't hang out with that cousin anymore stories kind of thing, but... Uh, it was it was this weird thing I never heard. So I asked him, like, what are we talking about? What is Lucifer? He said, well, he's he's bad, he's evil, he's out to get you, and you can't see him. So imagine being a five, six, seven-year-old and hearing that from your older cousin who you looked up to. And I'm pretty sure I ran inside and found my mom, and I didn't want to go out in the front yard for a long time after that because there's this invisible person out there, this invisible being coming after me. And so um, it, it filled me with a lot of fear. And you can imagine just the imagination of a child thinking about these kind of things. Um, you may remember if you were alive back then, I wasn't, the 1973 horror film The Exorcist. Have you heard of it? Maybe you, haven't, you have to admit to watching it, but you've heard of it. It was, it was a blockbuster. It was a, it was a big deal in the theater when it came out. And um, it was a story of demon possession, and a number of things obviously stood about, out about that movie, including uh, young girls' heads spinning around and projectile vomiting, those kind of things. And, and as you think about it, it was one of the you know, first big horror films, and this is a genre, if you're not aware of it, it's a genre of entertainment that is the most popular and the most profitable genre in all of, in all of Hollywood and all of film. And there's numerous reasons for this, but generally, when we think about movies like that, when we think about going to a movie and watching something that seems really supernatural, we do this thing called suspension of disbelief, right? Like when I went and watched the new Top Gun movie this week, which you have to suspend your disbelief in that one because it's pretty... Well, anyway, if you're a big Top Gun fan, go watch it. Have fun. But um, anyway, (laughs) Carrie loved it. Uh, Has anybody else seen it? Did you love it? Okay, so great. It was good. Um, And whatnot. But um, it's one of those things where when you watch a movie, you have to suspend disbelief. And with these kind of movies that that there's there's this fascination today with the supernatural and the paranormal and the spiritual and the the demonic. And and we, we generally watch those, though, with this suspension of disbelief. Like, that can't happen now. We live in an age, I think, in which we assume a sense of enlightenment, right? We believe in science in the sense, not, not, in a, not in a sense where we just doggedly believe anything that scientists tell us, but we believe it in the sense that everything has an explanation, right? Everything has an explanation that can be anchored in the physical world, that can be explained by the laws of physics or whatever, so, so most cultured and reasonable people don't talk about demons in any real or, or believable sense. We don't talk about the devil. We don't talk about 
angels and those kinds of things. In fact, if you were to tell a story like the one that Charlie just read for us today, if you go to work, you're hanging out with your friends at the water cooler, and then you tell them about this story, kind of like you were talking about your fantasy football team, you're talking about your last hunting trip or something like that, you just kind of throw it out there and say, hey, this crazy thing happened to me last week, you'd probably be, be met with stares of disbelief, Right? Maybe some kind of mocking laughter or you would wonder why you never got invited to parties anymore, that kind of thing. Or, or just imagine, it, you know, if, if we're honest, it's because I think stories like this, modern people, because of stories like this, modern people find it really easy to reject the Bible. Does that make sense? So you come, you come across a story like this and you automatically, most people we would talk to would automatically go, yeah, that can't happen today. And we tend, as Christians, I think, even to be embarrassed by stories like these. But if you go throughout the world, there are a lot of people, a lot of cultures, even regions of the world that accept stories like these as matters of course. In fact, a lot of folks would would not only just believe that this was, this was something that happened to Jesus back in the day, but this is something that me and my friends have all had experience with in, in one way or another. And it's easy for us then to go like, well, of course, those are backwards or illiterate or unenlightened or pre-scientific people. But you actually go back to Jesus' day when Matthew was writing this book to the Jews many of whom were called Sadducees. And if you know anything about the Sadducees, they didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in a thing called the resurrection. They didn't give any credence to stories like these. So it's not just people back in the day that were gullible or people in third world countries who believe these things. And of course, the spiritual world is given to us in the Bible and it's assumed to be fact. Jesus believed in demons. Would you agree with me? Jesus assumed it. and In fact, his entire ministry can be seen as a battle with the unseen and hostile spiritual forces in the world. And if we're going to take the Bible seriously, then we ought to take this story seriously. So, so there's a real tension, though, in how we approach these stories. Because on the one hand, there might be skeptics in the room. And and this story should challenge us, if we're skeptics, it should challenge us to recognize our tendency to explain away the unexplainable and then miss God in the process. So we might read this story and we might say, well, you know, these men were suffering from some sort of um, psychological or mental illness, an extreme mental illness. Or, or we might explain the demons as some kind of symbolism or some kind of myth that, that, that Jesus is trying to teach us something else. Either way, we, we, don't, we certainly don't think that an exorcism could happen today if we're skeptics. But here we are in the church, and most of us believe that the Bible is true. So we come to this story with a basic and firm faith that it actually relates actual an actual historical event. But if I were to get up here on a weekly basis and begin telling you about all the demons that I cast out during my pastoral visits each week, what would you start to think? Maybe you'd start looking for a new church. Maybe you'd start looking for a new pastor. 
You might just be ready to think that you are just giving lip service to believing what we have here in the Bible. But to be confronted with these things would actually kind of freak us out. And I'll, I'll be honest, I, I tend to be a pretty conservative, skeptical about a lot of things. I don't always believe what people tell me. But in my interaction with folks over the, the past three decades or so of Christian life, I've seen a lot of things that can't always just be explained away. Maybe you've had similar experiences. I'm not always sure in my interactions with people what to chalk up to mental illness, which is certainly a major thing today, or what to chalk up to chemical substances like drugs and alcohol, or, or what, to, what to chalk up to the influence of the demonic. And certainly in my experience, I think those three things can interact with each other pretty closely at times, or at least two, or th- two of them can. I've seen some things that can't, can only be explained, I think, by the presence of a spiritual force that is not human. We simply just need to watch the news and attempt to explain. Try, try to watch the news and attempt to explain what's going on in the world right now without reference to the spiritual world. Can you explain such things as unjust war, genocide, human trafficking, child abuse, mass shootings, the suicide rate going up, racism, race riots, political division, overwhelming materialism. Can you explain those things apart from a deeper spiritual reality that is hostile to the kingdom of God and and sets itself up against the good of humanity? Well, yeah, you probably could explain them, but I don't think it'd be a very good explanation. What we tend to do as modern moderns is not believe in the devil. And as C.S. Lewis argued years ago in the Screwtape Letters, the devil is perhaps most successful when he can persuade us not to believe in him. But there is a spiritual realm. And we're often blind to it, and we're often ignorant of it, especially in our modern age. But, but in following Jesus, we're actually engaged with hostile spiritual forces in what the Bible calls warfare. We battle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers at work in this present dark age. But guess what, brothers and sisters? We battle in a war that Jesus wins. So there's no need to be afraid, but there is need to be aware and to be engaged, be confident in Jesus' authority. This is a wild story, and it's really a story of two confrontations. It's a confrontation uh, between Jesus and these demons, and then later in the story, it's a confrontation between Jesus and some local people. This is the second of two chaos miracles. So if you're with me there in Matthew chapter 8, you'll notice that that right before this story is the story of the the sea, right? Jesus is on the sea with his disciples and he calms the storm. He tells, he rebukes the wind and the wave. Well, in all all the times that this story is told, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this confrontation with the demonic takes place right after 
the calming of the storm at the sea. So this is really intended to be read as one story, all the way back to 23. And I would actually argue that all the way back to verse 18, this is one story. You remember Jesus with the crowds, healing people, and then he tells his disciples, we need to go over to the other side. They begin to get ready. He has a couple conversations. They get in the boat, and then they go out on the lake. This should all really be seen as one story. And on the horizon of the entire narrative is Jesus' confrontation with these demonic powers. That is what he's looking forward to. So what do you think caused the storm? You think Satan wanted Jesus on the bottom of that lake? I think so. I don't think he wanted him to get to the other side to have a confrontation with these men and with these Demons, And so the story really begins, and we should see that Jesus was really heading there the whole time. This is where he was going to have this confrontation. And he meets there in verse 28, we're told, two men. It says, when he came to the other side, after he calmed the storm, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. So you get all sorts of images in your minds of, of what these guys look like. One of the other Gospels said uh, the man had, it was just one man in that Gospel, that he didn't have any clothes on. He was coming out and being crazy, and they tried to chain him up, and he'd break the chains all the time. But, but no matter what, these men were demon-possessed. Their bodies were, were somehow inhabited and controlled by evil, personal, spiritual beings whose presence had given them great physical strength, but it had overtaken their entire lives. They were, they were violent. They lived out in isolation. They lived in a graveyard. Their, their circumstances were crude and unclean. They lived probably in caves in the hillside that were used as tombs by the people of this city. And the story gives us this distinct impression that it's not these men who are speaking, but it's the demons who are in control of them that speak through them. And the effect on the lives of these men has been brutal. It's been isolation, living outside of normal society and likely having complete loss of control of their bodies of their functioning even of their minds and their consciousness you could just imagine the spiritual torment that these men were in the story is like i said it's parallel it has a has the same story in in both mark and luke but there's some very distinct differences between these stories in mark and luke you have one man but in matthew matthew tells a story of two demon possessed men and you kind of wonder, okay, like, what's the discrepancy? Did somebody get it wrong here? Like, were they sitting around writing the Gospels? And Matthew's like, no, 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 I distinctly remember two men. And Mark's like, no, I've been told it was only one man. That's what Peter said. It was only one guy, you know. And they're having this argument. I don't know. There's been all sorts of reasons for why Matthew has two men and Mark and Luke only have one. We, we know that in everything that Matthew writes, he's trying to make a, a theological point. And my opinion is that what he's doing here is he's, he's trying to convey a big idea, which we'll get to in just a, in a minute. But what he's doing is, in shorthand, basically saying that there's a lot of demons here. Not just one man with one demon. There's two men. There's at least two, two demons. And as we see in Mark and Luke, there's a legion of them, even more than just two. 
There's a legion of demons that come up against Jesus. And what we see in them is chaos. Like we saw on the sea with the storm, chaos. Here we have two men and they are hostile and they are talkative. They come out of the tombs not with a welcoming committee or a red carpet for Jesus. They come out of the tomb and they meet Jesus on the attack. Verse 29, Behold, they cried out. And that's not, they weren't in tears crying out. And it wasn't like they were just raising their voice. They were screaming. I mean, you can just imagine the scene. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? You can tell by their words that they're agitated, that they're actually afraid of Jesus' presence. They know who He is. They know the power that He wields. And unlike so many spiritually blind human beings, these demons are not blind to the presence of one who is superior to them. You know, just a couple verses earlier, the disciples saw Jesus calm the storm and they said, Who is this? What kind of man is Is this that even the the wind and the sea obey him? They're they're asking the question. We don't know. Who is this? This is amazing. The demons know. Because they see what we don't often see. And they understand who Jesus is in his person. So they go on the attack. Or maybe maybe they're going on the defensive. (laughs) I don't know. But but they, they try to attack. They begin screaming at him. What do you have to do with us? In other words... What do we have in common, Jesus? What are you even doing here? Why would you come to a graveyard? If you're you're the Son of God, you're only supposed to go to clean places. And here you are coming to a demon-possessed hellhole. Why are you here? They don't want Jesus there. They want him to go away, and they say it in no uncertain terms. We're not interested in you. You shouldn't be interested in us. Go away. And rightly, the demons address Jesus as the Son of God. But they're not speaking that from a place of faith. Remember back in chapter 4, Satan himself, the tempter, came to Jesus and used that same title. And he said, Jesus, if you are the Son of God, then, then do this. In a mocking, deriding, doubting kind of place, tempting Jesus, if you will, to doubt his own identity as God's beloved Son and, and perhaps the demons thought, and this was, this was normal at the time, that you could have power over someone if you knew their name or you knew their title. And so perhaps they thought they would have power over him by calling him by this title, Son of God. Perhaps they were just simply mocking him. Have you come here, this is an interesting question, have you come here to torment, torment us Before the time, they ask. Curious question. What in the world are they talking about? Now, this is coming from a chaotic pair of men who are violent, screaming, loud. So, so So we don't have to take it as conveying any deep truth, but it does allude to the fact that they have knowledge of an impending judgment. In in the story in Luke, Luke records them as begging Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. This is possibly a reference, probably, to Revelation chapter 20 that talks about a pit, a bottomless pit reserved as a long-term holding chamber for Satan. These demons, in other words, know that there's an appointed time that awaits them to undergo judgment. 
And even more than that, they know that Jesus, the Son of God, is the one who has the authority to render that judgment. In other words, they know how the story ends. They're just hoping that it doesn't end yet. They want a little bit more time. Now a herd of many pigs, verse 30, was feeding at some distance from them, and the The demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. They came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. This entire story in Matthew is condensed into seven verses. And within those seven verses, it's much longer in Mark and Luke, Matthew condenses it down, and in those seven verses, Jesus is nearly invisible and silent. I don't know if you notice that as you read through the story. Jesus doesn't do anything. He, does, he doesn't say much of anything. He does, actually does one thing, and it's to speak, and he says one word. That's all he does in that whole passage. So what you have is a picture of chaos... Screaming, yelling, bloody murder, and Jesus calm, just like he was on the sea. Chaos, wind and waves, the boat going all over the place, the the disciples scared to death, and Jesus calm and in control in the midst of the chaos. And this terseness of Jesus' one action in the story really brings a spotlight to the main idea, to the main message. Jesus simply says to them, Go. One word, a command. He doesn't scream. He doesn't speak, it says. It doesn't say he raises his voice. It doesn't say he enters into some sort of complicated incantation or ceremony to get these demons to go out. He simply, with calm authority, gives the one word command, go, and instantly his will is done. We've seen this, haven't we, with the illness of the centurion's servant. We've seen this with the storm on the sea. These powerful, chaotic, mysterious, hostile beings now, just like the illness, just like the storm on the sea, they must submit to Jesus' authoritative word. They must do what he says, which is evidenced by a bunch of pigs stampeding down into the sea where they drown, which for Jewish readers would have made them chuckle, by the way. That a bunch of pigs just, a bunch of unclean pigs just got drowned. And Jesus, Jesus' authority and effectiveness as an exorcist is, is proven through this instantaneous, sudden death of this herd of pigs. So Jesus' interaction with these demons really paints a picture then of him being, being a being. He is a being who's beyond compare. His reputation precedes him in the spiritual world and his authority extends beyond the physical world to the spiritual world and beyond the present time to the end of time. So so Jesus not only has power over the uncontrollable forces of nature, but also of the spiritual world. And not only that, but he's the Son of God who will one day judge the world, including the spiritual beings who are in rebellion to him. And I say all this because it can be tempting to view this 
This story is a confrontation between two equally powerful supernatural forces. Like Jesus, the, the Son of God, coming against, up against these demons. And who's going to win? Who's going to win? The story leaves no question. What we actually have here is Creator confronting His creation. The, 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 the gap is huge. It's distant. There's no comparing the two. And furthermore, what's becoming clear throughout all these miracles, this is the fifth one in this series, is that Jesus' ministry is intended to be a full frontal assault on the kingdom of darkness. You meet an unclean leper. Jesus sees that as a spiritual issue. The demonic is behind that. You you meet illness and disease. And you meet natural forces like like storms and waves, all of that Jesus sees behind it the work of the enemy and He is coming against the kingdom of darkness and all that Satan has brought into the world. The end is in sight for Satan and his minions. The strong man has been bound and his house and goods are being plundered. The curse is being reversed in the coming of Jesus, in the coming of his kingdom, and the power of the devil is being broken. Brothers and sisters, this is wonderful news. You can say amen. Thank you, Wayne. (laughs) It's wonderful news. It's good news that Jesus is coming to bring his kingdom and no other kingdom will stand before it. But not everyone welcomes the good news of God's kingdom. In verse 33, not having a herd anymore, the herdsmen fled. And it says they go into the city and they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And the response of these Gentiles is surprising in some ways, but not so much in other ways. I mean, you, could, you would imagine that they would be curious. Like, wow, what? these are guys that we've been afraid of. We can't even go close to the cemetery anymore because they're violent. We've tried to restrain them, but we can't. So you would think maybe they'd come out with some gratitude. Wow, Jesus, thanks for bringing us some peace and quiet in the neighborhood. But the peace that Jesus brings, they understand, is peace at a cost. For this town, it was financial cost. They just lost a major, they just lost a major source of income in all these Pigs. It could, it could be argued that they were angry with Jesus about the death of the pigs because of the economic blow that it would have on their city. But I think not only are they upset, but they're also afraid because they see in Jesus one whose authority extends even to the uncontrollable powers of the spiritual world. One whose authority we cannot even begin to comprehend or understand something that we have tried the best we can to control, that we haven't been strong enough to control, that we've put outside the town and we can't really explain it. Now someone comes along who is able with the word not only to handle them, but to free them. Their fear of Jesus is actually greater than their fear of the demons, I think. And rightly so. If this one has authority over these forces, then what else does he have authority over? It's a scary question. 
You'll notice the verbal similarities. I'll put them up on the screen between these two pictures of the demons and the town people. With the demons in verses 28 and 31, it says, Two demon-possessed men met him coming out. And then in verse 31, the demons begged him. Well, look what happens when these locals come out of their town to meet Jesus, just like the demon-possessed men did. And when they saw him, what did they do? They begged him. There's a parallel here. Matthew's showing us two things, that these townspeople are not so different than these demon-possessed men. There's a purposeful comparison here. The demons met Jesus, begged him to leave them alone, and they finally came out of the men and go into the swine. Well, these people come out of the city, meet Jesus, and they too beg him to leave them alone. The locals have the same response as the demons. In essence, what do we have to do with you, Jesus? It's almost as if they're saying, whatever you've done to these men, we don't want you to do it to us. And even though the people of this city might might not put forth physical signs of demonic possession or oppression, they're actually pictured as being unclean, living in a land populated by unclean spirits and unclean animals, perhaps more concerned with their wealth or their status than with their souls. And their patent rejection of Jesus is just as demonic as that of the demons themselves. See, any rejection of Jesus... Any asking of Jesus to leave can only ultimately come from one place. And just as Jesus cast all of the demons out of these two men, in in an ironic twist, all of the people of the city come and they cast Jesus out of their region. And the interesting thing is that he quietly, respectfully, without saying a word, goes. See, the story tells us it's clear that the kingdom will come. And one day the kingdom of God will come completely. But until then, while we dwell in the already not yet, the kingdom will not come into human hearts where it is unwelcomed. So we have to decide... You have to decide. I have to decide. Do we want Jesus to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness? Do we want to submit to His authority and both the loss and the freedom that that requires of us? You see, Jesus' authority extends to you and it extends to me. So the question is today, will you welcome Him? Or will you send Him away? Because He will honor your wishes. You don't want Jesus to have anything to do with your life. He will honor you in that. He will go away if that's what you want, but he won't stay away forever. Better to welcome Jesus now than to be unwelcomed by him later. As we think of that, as we think of the question, will we welcome Jesus or not, I want to invite you to the communion table this morning because this is the feast, the meal where Jesus has shown us his welcome of us. It's the meal where we remember that Jesus purchased for us freedom. Freedom not just from sin, 
but freedom from the oppressive spiritual forces in this world that want nothing but to see us reject Jesus. And we come and we take of this meal, we attest that the kingdom of God is good, that the kingdom of God has come, and that Jesus in the end will win. Just as he won at the cross, he will win on the last day. So if that's your heart, if you want Jesus, if you welcome Jesus as as we do, this is a church who welcomes Jesus and has done it for 150 years, sometimes better than others. Just as all of us, sometimes better than others, welcome Jesus. We won't all do it perfectly, but I would invite you to come to the meal of the King who's given his life for you, who's paid for your sins, and who invites you to come and to welcome him just as he's welcomed you, to come and to give you freedom to give you life, to welcome you to his kingdom. Let's pray together. Jesus, we do thank you for coming and the crazy story that most of us would not want to even see on our TV screens, much less be present at. You are the picture again of perfect peace, perfect trust in your Father, perfect trust in your own being and your own authority. And today, Jesus We just want to exalt you as the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. In the physical, physical, visible realm and in the unseen spiritual realm, you have all authority. Jesus, you have all authority over our lives and our hearts. And my prayer today for each of us is that we would submit that to you. That we would take our hands off off of the wheel of our own lives and allow you to be welcomed into our hearts and our lives, that we would submit all to the authority of King Jesus. As we come to the table, Lord, would you meet us in your grace? There are those in the room who are just as skeptical as when they walked in or or doubtful or resistant to you, Lord. I pray that you would, even as they don't come forward, that they would just, that you would meet them where they're at today. You would encourage them, love them, call them in your good patience to yourself as you always do. Pray all these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.